Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to the show. Um, uh, I'm Doug. Uh, my partner is Peter, and welcome, Peter. Welcome, Doug. And this week we are doing 1958's Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, some call it his best film, Vertigo. People call it, well, I guess some people do. A lot of people call it his best film. Hitchcock didn't feel like it was his best work, but a lot of people feel like this is their, this is the best Hitchcock film. Yeah, I don't think it's his best. But. So, you know, this is my first time seeing it. You've seen it before? Yeah, it's been a while, but I've probably seen like 90%. I mean, he made a, a ton of pictures, um, but uh, I've seen it a couple of times, but it's probably, it's been many years since I've seen it. So I kind of remembered the plot, but not all the details. Um, you know, I, I, um, I, was, I was spending some time on the Sight and Sound webpage and in the Sight and Sound poll, Vertigo is rated the number one film of all time, sort of displacing Citizen Kane. Yeah, uh, and I, read I thought, about that. and I thought, oh, you know what? I should see Vertigo. So that's why I that that's why I picked it for this week. I don't think it's it's Hitchcock's best film. I gotta say, I, I think it's it has great things about it, but I, I don't think it's his best film. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen everything Hitchcock's done. I've probably seen half a dozen. I don't think I've seen more than half a dozen Hitchcock films. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> um, where do we begin? Do you want to do the summary? This is a tough movie for you to summarize. Yeah, I mean, basically, the movie's about uh, Jimmy Stewart plays a retired um, police detective in San Francisco who basically had to retire because he had an on the job accident where he was hanging from a rooftop. And as a result of that, he got, um, uh, extreme fear of heights. Like he basically well, and also got, because, because somebody died, right. Trying to rescue him. And right. you know, he almost, he almost died. He's basically like hanging like 10 stories up by a sagging rain gutter from his fingertips. Um, I'm not even sure actually how he survived that, uh, um, when it, lo it looks pretty grim for him when he's... Yeah, they don't show him. how he got off the, right. the precipice there. By the way, um, you know that uh, there's somebody who... Some film critic has suggested that, you know, he that, that the rest of the movie was flashing before his eyes like Ambrose Bierce's uh, short story. Uh, Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Right. So, But I, that's probably a stretch. I, I think yeah, that's silly. Too much but, for me. Right. But um, that's like saying that Sandy dies in the beginning of Greece and drowns and the rest of the movie is just a fantasy. It's yeah. the same idea. You can't come up with a Star Trek reference? No, not for that one. <laughs> hey, I went to Greece. That's pretty good. <laughs> I know. That's why I was surprised. It's a, it's a real <laughs> it's a big change. Uh, I, I, just, I just have to declare, I don't think that there's any Star Trek relationship between Vertigo and, and Star Trek. Like I, I thought about it and I didn't recognize anybody, but anyway, we digress. Yeah. yeah there, Jimmy Stewart did not play in any of these Star Trek series. No. Um, so, so anyway, so he's, so he, so he Scotty Ferguson, Scotty. Um, so he, he gets a call from an old friend who's pretty wealthy, runs a shipping company. It says he's worried about his wife and can he basically do a private detective type task? This is right after he retires. And can he, figure out what's going on with his wife because his wife's acting strangely. And uh, so he follows her. And in the end, he's sort of a bit abruptly 
starts falling in love with her and she's exhibiting strange behavior like obsession with an old dead relative that was maybe an ancestor of hers and um in the end they end up in a monastery out like 100 miles out of san francisco and she runs ahead of him up a tower he can't follow her all the way because of his um severe phobia uh, for heights and he gets, uh, he can't follow all the way up. She runs up to the top and she commits suicide by diving out of the window. So then after that, um, he takes basically a turn for the worse. You know, he's a little bit rough around the edges in the beginning, takes a turn for the worse and really ends up basically ends up in a mental institution. Um, catatonically depressed. Yeah, he, he gets severely mentally ill. Some time passes that's indefinite, but it's probably a significant amount of time passes, um, maybe like a year. Um, it's quite a while because he's in there and then he gets released. He finally gets out. He gets a little better over a long period of time. Um, and he, he basically sees um, uh, uh, Mrs. Elster, um, who, um, was played by Kim Novak everywhere in San Francisco. Madeline was her name. He sees her all over the place. He keeps imagining he's seeing her and he even visits kind of the old haunts where he's still kind of obsessed with her, but he's sort of trying to get over it. And then he's standing on the sidewalk and a woman walks by who, who looks superficially doesn't look like Madeline. I mean, she's a brunette. Madeline was a, was a, blonde or hair is different but something about her the way she looks sort of reminds him and he follows her to her hotel and he goes and he talks to her and he ends up going out with her and something sort of attaches him to her and then Hitchcock does something very interesting um to me this is one of the most interesting plot elements of the movie is that he reveals the truth right away uh, almost right away and that she basically says that she was hired by the husband to play his Scotty's old friend Scotty's old you know friend or acquaintance who killed basically was killing his wife so that he could inherit the the, the business from her um uh, the the shipping business that was providing his his uh, fortune and uh he hired this woman because she kind of looked like her and he I guess she could she could act like his his wife and the whole time she was playing his wife but was not and she was also his mistress yes i mean it's right so they sort of reveal that later when she talks that she basically was um was his mistress at the time and he subsequently uh gave her some money and told her to beat it and um he uh <clears throat> They, they concocted the whole thing and he orchestrated the whole thing knowing that Scotty would not be able to follow her up the tower. And that Scotty also was sort of on edge. Like he really played him like a violin, essentially. And Scotty doesn't really get it, but the woman had, the way he developed feelings and love for her, she, she did the same for Scotty during the time they were together, which I guess, I don't know if it was, was several weeks or whatever it was. It's not very long. It's not very it long. It seems like a few days. It seems like a few days, but, you know, it, it's so unlikely just to be a few days. But let's say it's a few weeks. It wasn't very long. But she's had feelings for him. But in the end, you know, she's 
complicit basically in that crime. And so she kind of moves on. But when she sees him again and realizes how damaged he is, and I guess she realizes how much he fell in love with her, she kind of can't resist. She, she considers running away, fleeing, really can't resist. And she still has feelings for him. So she goes out with him as her current um, true Judy, whatever her name is, her current true uh, identity instead of as, as fake Madeline. And eventually he figures it out. Um, Scotty figures out what happened because she puts on a necklace that um, takes him back to the painting that she used to look at. And he finally figures it out um, in the end. And they drive back out to the monastery and to the tower. He gets over his phobia going up the stairs with her because of the, the strain of being there and uh, whatever. He breaks his, his phobia. And then um, they're up at the top, basically, like having a, the peak um, argument, so to speak, about what's, what happened. And he basically, you know, is angry and accuses her, you know, of, of playing him. He realizes he's been manipulated from the right. get-go. He, he, he realized but this is his only chance kind of to confront anybody about it. And um, while they're having this argument and she's trying to explain to him that she really, she, she stayed because she fell in love with him um, and, and she couldn't, she really has real feelings for him and she just wants him to, to be in love with her um, and they have a, and for them to have a life, um, this, a nun kind of like pops up <laughs> right out of the trap door at the bottom and scares the crap out of them. And she kind of steps back halfway and then falls over the edge to her, presumably to her death. And then that's the end of the movie. Do you think that she fell cause she was scared? Did she jump out of guilt? I actually, it's funny cause my take on it was that she threw herself over the over the edge because she felt guilty i think it was an accident but on the other hand she was so distressed and you know it's not like you couldn't see that coming i mean the whole time you're thinking like <clears throat> you know you want to yell at the uh, screen get away woman <laughs> get away <laughs> so wikipedia agrees with you saying that she is startled and falls to her death but hmm because when they show when they show uh, Jimmy Stewart walk out into the ledge at the end, like there's a couple of feet there. Well, that's also just to provide Jimmy Stewart with a place to gaze down in the last second. No, of the I'm movie. just, I'm just, I was funny because my take on it was that she jumped out of guilt. But anyway, but you know, if she did that, then why did they have the contrivance of having a very, I mean, the nun truly does look pretty scary and the way Hitchcock shoots the nun, she's, this sort of amorphous. She, she appears seemingly out of nowhere. Right, she shows up out of nowhere, and and in the the few seconds during her transition, where you realize she's a nun, she could she almost looks supernatural for a few seconds, and I think that she's very startled. Although the background of the scene is extreme, um, uh, you know, guilt, anxiety. Um, I, I just I think that it's just a tragic ending. Uh, anyways, well, you know, it's almost like the ending, no matter how you slice it, it's a terribly tragic ending and it's a tragic story. I mean, the, the way that I kind of interpreted the ending was, 
you know, they could be in love with each other only under the guise of the lie. And then when all the truth is revealed, they can't be together. Yeah, I, I think that to me, the story has just these more fundamental elements about the fact that, that Scotty is he seems to be so together, but in reality, the guy is, is basically a, a hodgepodge of a modern male um, id disaster. Uh, in that, well, and he and he's sort of obsessed with the idea of her as opposed to the reality of her. I think that Midge. So, uh, for the listeners, he, his sidekick is a very, very attractive woman, much closer to his age, named Midge, who's supremely grounded, funny, and, uh, high functioning, yeah. yeah, independent, and and you know she's she's a she's in, she's invisible to him you know like she's too real she's too grounded she's too down to earth and he doesn't see her and she's as much as he's obsessed with uh the idea of elsted's wife she loves him you know midge is obsessed with scott and he he literally can't see it well, at all i don't think she's even obsessed i think she's just she loves him in a normal way and he yeah, well, he and, can't. and she well she does say that she says in the beginning of the movie that she that he is the only man for her even to the point that they were engaged once yeah i mean she's clearly in love with him and she's also clearly objectively a very good match um and and legitimately very appealing in in every way and much more appealing than madeline is when she shows up madeline is damaged right, and she's Midge is, you know, it's funny because Midge is very pretty, but they kind of make her look a little dowdy and they give her a sort of unflattering eyewear that's very prominent. Um, but, you know, he's much more in love with all these illusions and and, and fakery right. than he is with anything real throughout but the movie. But even besides that, besides the the kind of fakery, it's, it's the, I mean, Kim Novak, and especially when she's Madeline, is extremely beautiful, very well put together, um, and mysterious and sexy, and um, also um, damaged, sort of waif-like, um, very young, very um, mysterious. Uh, and, you know, it basically pushes all his buttons, and, and he, he's extremely um, emotionally attached and lustful. And I think that, you know, this is 1958 when this movie was made. So they can't be as forthright as they would be for in, you know, 2008 or 2019 um, about um, men being lustful, but, or, or women either. But of course, but, uh, you know, he's a lot of this, this movie is about the mysterious aspect of attraction, especially in the setting of a guy who's a little bit on the unstable side to begin with. Um, well, and I think that, you know, I mean, the movie is drenched in Scotty's mental illness, right? His agoraphobia, sorry, his acrophobia, not agoraphobia, his acrophobia, his catatonic depression, his obsessive love slash lust for her. And I would argue that he probably is never really in love with her. He's, it's all lust. Yes. You know, like even to the point, like the first time he sees her at at Ernie's restaurant, you know, the the whole scene sort of flares pink. I don't yeah. know if you noticed that. There's sort of like a, a color flare, you know, just to sort of emphasize that, you know, he's he's hot for her, but he doesn't know her at all. No, and he, he never really gets to know her to the, because she's not even real. Um, he, he's attached to her for 
lust and these reasons, these other sort of psychiatric reasons that are part of his character. And, and you know, it's funny because the movie starts off as kind of a film noir with a lot of, you know, film noir tropes, right? One last case for him to solve, yeah. right? With the femme fatale. And then very, very quickly, it veers into really like a psychological thriller. And, and you know, it's funny because it's a romance. That's sort right, of a romance. They're mixed together. Um, I mean, there's, there's a period where it goes from that to this abrupt romance that even the viewer the first time, you have to wonder what, what, how is, what's going on? Like all of a sudden they're, all of a sudden they're kind of like making out. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, well, and the scene where they declare their love for each other is it's one of the weakest moments in the film. Right. It's it's a real it's a real stretch. Yeah, I mean, he's supposed to be kind of nuts, right? And and that's why he can be taken advantage of. But on the other hand, they don't show you don't realize how nuts he is until you're kind of reflecting back on the movie. I mean, you get a sense that things aren't right or that that this is too fast, but they don't provide you with uh, enough assessment to suspend disbelief or to feel that the timing of their developing relationship is, is adequate. It doesn't really seem adequate enough. Well, and you know, for me, just since we're talking about their relationship, the fatal flaw of the film is he's too old. He's 50 in real life, and she's supposed 26. to be 26, being played by Kim Novak, who was 24. She was 24 and at the time? Yeah, wow, she's put that... She that, looked older the, than that. The, 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 well, she looks older when she has the blonde hair, but when she has the brown hair, she looks 24. But uh, I guess my point is, like, I I could not accept you know, her falling for him. I mean, he's gray already. I mean, he's... Again, you know... I'm not trying to be ageist, but I mean, he looks dramatically older than her. I mean, he's essentially a retired guy with no job hanging around doing well, nothing. Well, if you've ever seen a Jimmy Stewart or a Cary Grant movie, they're all... <laughs> right, but it's but I think it's very hard. You know, it's funny because even Hitchcock, um, I read an interview with Hitchcock, and he said he felt it was the one big mistake he made in the movie, um, that he thought that Jimmy Stewart was... And he liked Jimmy Stewart very much, but he just thought he was too old to do it. You know, this movie is two years before Psycho, right. but you can see echoes of this in Psycho in the sense that in both this and Psycho, the female lead is, quote unquote, killed off in the middle of the film. They're really about sort of like psychological illness more than they are about anything else. And both use psychiatrists to sort of give exposition and explain things to the audience at certain times. Like I was sort of like, I actually had to check like which came first, this or psycho, because in some ways they were similar. And also tons of the driving scenes in this are extremely similar to the driving scenes in psycho. They're filmed the same way and they generate the same sort of tension. Yeah. I, I think psycho is, um, Strangely, I, to me, Psycho is a better Psycho film. Is a better film. I think this. Psycho is strangely, <laughs> strangely more believable, <laughs> even though on the surface well, it's maybe more ridiculous in a way. And Psycho seems more relevant to today. I don't know. Like I don't know. I've seen Psycho maybe a half dozen times, and it it never fails to impress me. I mean, this movie, 
it's technically very oh, impressive. Like the dolly zoom, the dolly zoom is invented for this film that you've seen in a million other movies. This is where it comes from. It, there's no film where the dolly zoom appears before this. You know, there's a really clever animated sequence in one of his dreams. The the way that they use sort of color yes, technicolor. in this is, yeah, to sort of like emphasize Scotty's emotions. You know, that's what the, the color well, is even in the this. Even you know, and, and like, the production design, the every the movie is beautifully, beautifully crafted. I mean, and you know, the other thing is like the print that we watched is is a restored um, print because uh, you know the film was degrading and they they had to do a lot of coloration and they they actually matched color with a um, with a using a green paint sample from the car that was provided by the car like General hmm. Motors or Ford or whatever like car was one of the her car her green car manufacturer right um, because you know it did you amazing. notice well and again like you know like the technical aspects really impressed me like like I don't know if you noticed but like a lot of times when he sees her as Madeline early in the film before he realizes and everything you know he he sees her like through doorways and he's always seeing her in a sort of framed limited way to sort of convey like maybe he's not getting the whole story yeah. she's often surrounded by mirrors like there's all this subliminal suggestion that there's a lie inherent in the whole story. And really the villain of the movie is his friend. Yes. I mean, his friend who orchestrates not only his wife's death, he manipulates Judy, he manipulates Scotty. You know, he gets Scotty essentially tried for murder. Right. He's embarrassed in, in front of the, like, the grand jury. Did you notice, by the way, that the jury deliberated right in front of him for about four seconds? Like, I was kind of like, wow, they don't even have a room for the jury in the trial scene. Like, they literally, like, looked at each other like, oh, looks not guilty to me. This Here you go. True, and then, though. like, it, it was, was done. 1958. It was probably true. I, I don't know. Like, you're supposed to really like Jimmy Stewart, but I don't know. Like, he's a kind of a dick to Midge the whole movie. Well, but, you know, in hindsight, I think you, you look at the movie and the movie's a tragedy all around. I think you realize when the movie's over how damaged he was that I think you don't, you don't really fully get an appreciation of the sweep and the depth of his um, illness and his character flaw until the end. I mean, he doesn't ever know and her. I, and ironically, in the end, he gets exactly what he wanted. He gets the actual girl that he's in love with. But in, in realizing that he has the actual girl, he falls out of love with her. Yes, he has. Right. He gets this girl. Like, not only is the, I mean, it's, it's better than real life because, first of all, Madeline didn't die in reality because the woman he fell in love with is still there. He finds her. Like, she comes back from the dead. Plus... She's not, she's, she's not attached in the way Madeline was. So it's possible for them to be together and, and he can't, he can't do it. Like he, he's, you know, he can't, it could have gone so much differently, right? It could have, you know, they could have sort of, maybe they could have confessed to each other what was going on or, you know, she has her, her faults too. I mean, uh, Judy, you know, the, the, the fake Madeline. Right. The real Judy. Um, but, you know, uh, clearly the, the movie could have ended differently. Like it could have really had a happy ending where he sort of normalizes and, and gets over his, you know, his insanity. But I don't, I don't know. I think the movie, 
I think that it has, it has, to me, it has places where it's a little tough to suspend disbelief or maybe it's not even the right word. It's more like where you, um, you're taken out of the, uh, flow of the plot and the emotions of the movie because you question whether, um, the timing is, is adequate or real. Uh, and, Right, their 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 initial romance when he believes that he's with his friend's wife Madeline, it's too fast, it's too improbable. He's too old. Like there's too many there's too many mental leaps you have to make to buy into it. You could you could easily buy the fact that he becomes obsessed with her and, and falls in lust with her, but the fact that she reciprocates, you know, true. And she's, you know, and she's extremely pretty and she's going to fall for this old guy wandering around the streets of San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, you know what they could have done, honestly, is uh, instead of saying she was 26, if they would have said she was a 34, 36, you know, if she was yeah. in her mid 30s, uh, you know, half your age plus seven. <laughs> uh, um, right. <laughs> but, you know, uh, he he. He, you could sort of think he was maybe in his mid to late forties, maybe you know, in in the movie, uh, you know, he could be in his mm. around that late. But 40s. if she were mid thirties, he drives a Desoto. No young cool guy drives a Desoto. Well, I don't know. I mean, I drive a Desoto. <laughs> right. Yeah. Making my point exactly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> point taken. <laughs> I think I guess I liked it a little better than you. I I think it has flaws, but I still think it's kind of, the more I think about it, sort of the better it is in a way. And I, I think it's it's better after. It's like it's one of those movies that's it's better afterward when you think about it, um, and when you see it as a as a whole unit and as a sweep, because um, in the middle of it, a couple places, it's a little rough. Vera Miles was supposed to was supposed to play the Kim Novak role. Yeah, Kim Novak's still alive, by the way. She's in her eighties. Is know? she really? Vera She's Miles 86. is uh, is is it? Vera Miles is eighty nine and is still alive. But she's in Psycho two years later. But she got pregnant and couldn't play the <laughs> part. Um, the movie is kind of a love letter to San Francisco. Like San Francisco is very lovingly shot. Yes. Um, like it looks good, you know, like it's, it's funny, like it, how uncrowded San Francisco looks like it's nothing like the San Francisco, you know, of a half a century plus later. Uh, but it's, it's interesting how empty it is. It's so empty that he could run into Judy on the street, you know, not that long after he gets out of the, the sanitarium. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of um, mat work that I thought was interesting. Like there's a lot of rear projection Paintings, and there's yeah. a lot of mat yeah. work. Yeah. Or, or like sort of like optical as opposed to, I mean, there's no digital mat, but sort of optical mm -hmm. matting. Um, like the scene with the great Sequoia, there's some, some matting there. You know, it's, it's like technically it's very, very well done. I don't know. You know, I will tell you that I, I struggled in the middle, like at about the one hour mark, I had to pause it and take a little break because it wasn't working for me. And then after the trial and after he gets out of the, the mental hospital, the movie sort of picked back up for me. And I felt like the last half hour plays very well, but the it's, it's slow in the middle. You know, when it came out, it was savaged by the critics. Like it was not well received and almost all the critics 
felt that it was too long. And, and honestly, I could see why they felt that. Although sort of on a sort of critical reevaluation over the years, I think people are much more, uh, I guess, willing to uh, willing to accept the pacing of the movie. Again, Sight and Sound puts it as the best film ever. I, I don't know if I could do that at all. I I don't think it, it's not the best movie ever. I mean, I think that the movie, it, it, what, as I said, when you look back on it, it leaves this impression. Uh, it leaves a, a stronger impression of, of flawlessness than it actually has, um, which is interesting um, because I think it has a certain, it has a certain emotional power um, that it achieves uh, that I think that stays with people, even if they don't remember the whole plot, because it, it's tragic and it's, it, there's so much loss and hope and lust in it that uh, I think it, it leaves people are left with that feeling with the intensity of it. Um, that I think people sort of remember it being really good for those reasons. Uh, and, and it's beautiful. And you could imagine in 1958, too, that there was a lot of shocking imagery and subtext to this that probably generated a lot of interest. Yeah. When did Hitchcock become truly recognized as an auteur? Because after he was dead, I think towards the end of his career, he at least um, I mean, he made movies into the 70s. He died in 1980, but he made movies uh, well into the 70s. But. I think, you know, I think sometime into the 60s, he, he, he got some more recognition. Before that, he was just, I guess, recognized as a successful and interesting director, maybe. Um, well, I think it, I think during his lifetime, he was viewed as sort of like more of like a populist right. director. I think that after he died, there was sort of like a, a reevaluation of his work. I mean, he was made, he made movies starting in the 30s. He made silent movies. I think he made movies before that. No, I mean, he was he was making movies under David O. Selznick starting in 39. Uh, and then he made silent pictures, too, before that. Um, hmm. So he, he was a very early director and had an extremely long career. He made a ton of movies. Um, but he... Um, I think he, towards the end, after, you know, in the 60s, I think he started getting at least some recognition for artisanship, at least. Well, and I think, you know, I mean, I'm looking at his filmography while we're talking. It's probably about 50 films. But, you know, by the time you and I were kids, you know, he was recognized as an expert, and you know, sort of a master filmmaker. And, you know, things like vertigo north by northwest psycho the birds the man who knew too much rear window sure. right um you know these you know people are are talking about these films in very revered tones sure. by the time you and i are kids oh yeah I mean, and there, there there are a ton of them yeah none of which i've seen i mean his i mean i i'm the i think the earliest film of his i've seen is lifeboat yeah no i mean and lifeboat is i think 1944 yeah, I mean, he made a, a whole bunch of movies before that that were um, his his classic early films. You know, Shadow of a Doubt, The Lady Vanishes, Thirty Nine Steps, Secret Agent, Man Who Knew Too Much, Sabotage. Like those are all 
early movies that yeah i haven't um, seen those were where he already was at, at honed his craft to a large extent but you know it's funny that this film is so much about obsession you know because hitchcock was famously obsessed with his first ladies repeatedly mm-hmm. to the point where he himself recognized that it was unhealthy but it's interesting that you know this film like you know is his scotty is surrogate for hitchcock himself possibly whether or not whether or not hitchcock's aware of that or yeah. not i don't know i mean i, I kind of it kind of it wasn't well how do i say this it was not a fun watch at least the first time and maybe it's more fun on subsequent watches but i don't know if i had a fun time watching it like i felt kind of like i was in college taking a film school class mm. you know interesting i liked it more than that i mean look i think yeah I window you know, the Psycho Rear Window, those are probably his best movies, maybe. I mean, I think uh, even Rope is really good. I mean, they're, they're a whole, plus some of the early ones. I mean, he made a whole bunch of super impressive films. Um, it, but this is, I don't think it's it's his best, but I think it's really... It's one of his most famous, for sure. It's, I mean, it's sort of like a sort of a signature Alfred Hitchcock film. I don't know. I think you have to see it again in a couple of years and see what you think. I think that you'll like it better. Yeah, and I should read about it a little bit as well, because I mostly just have my opinions of it. You know, like I'd be sort of curious what other people think on evaluation. I mean, I was just looking online a little bit, and there are people who have seen this movie hundreds of times, um, like film critics who have written whole books about Vertigo. I don't know. I mean, the other thing he does is, uh, you know, in the movie that's interesting is when he's gradually transforming Judy back into Mar- Madeline in front of him and he's he's instigating it and she goes and she's, you know, they go and get an outfit for her and he directs it and then then he does her hair and then he does her hair again and then she finally comes out of the bathroom in her apartment as the f- finally as exactly as Madeline and it's this kind of like climactic moment for him because he and and we see her sort of with a green halo yeah, and and for both of them it's such an abnormal moment i mean it's insane frankly and yet it's also like this this uh, climactic moment for them well and she i think that she you could argue that soon thereafter you know she puts on the necklace and reveals who she really is that she wanted him to know like that's a freudian slip on her part right either she did it intentionally or she did it subconsciously like she wanted to reveal like we see her when she writes the yes. letter like you see that that's her first instance uh, is to, to tell him right she is to tell him right she very much wants him to know you know by the way hitchcock there was a huge debate about whether the scene of her writing the letter should be in there mm-hmm. or not so like they they filmed they they tested different versions of it with the studio with her writing the letter or not because it changes the whole way that you perceive her how sympathetic she is you realize that he is right you know that like boy she really does look like madeline so the letter writing scene gives a lot away oh, yeah i mean that's what i said when, you know when i was talking about the plot I, I mean you think about how unusual it is to reveal your hand like that ahead of time i mean nobody if they were making that movie now there's no way they would do that well and, and the same way not only do you see the letter you also you see, see the reenactment you see the murder from her point of view where she gets to the top and and there's the husband hurling the the dead wife over the precipice 
you watch the movie in an entirely different way. It really changes everything when he does it that way. It enables you to, to see how, to get a, an uneasy sense of how abnormal the movie is. I think if you didn't do that, it would be not even half the, the picture. Well, and it allows the movie to have an extremely atypical right. structure and throw the audience, you know, for for multiple unexpected turns, right? That you're sort of left grappling with, like, what's happening or where are we going? Like, you think you know where the movie's going and you don't. Again, uh, like two years later in Psycho, when Marion is killed halfway through the movie and she's essentially the main character. Yeah. Even right, more and you're shocking. left looking at your watch, thinking we're only an hour into this movie. Where where do we go from here? But you know, it it shows you too, like how effective a trick that is if you want to to jolt the audience. And for example, to make a very modern uh, a modern example is I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones, but you know, Game of Thrones has made repeated use of killing off main characters at unexpected time after they have built them up and had the audience invest in them. I mean, the most notable example in Game of Thrones is the the so-called Red Wedding. I think it's at the end of the third season where two-thirds of the main cast is murdered in one scene mm -hmm. and the show goes on without yeah, I, them. I've had that on my to-watch to list, so thanks for the uh, spoiler. <laughs> you know, you'll never see it coming. Don't worry. <laughs> But, you know, like, I mean, that's the Game of Thrones shtick, you know, which is perhaps, you know, at least a little bit, whether consciously or not, by George R.R. R. Martin borrowed from this. You know, just what can we do, you know, to, to, to just upend the table and let the audience, you know, become completely unmoored from their expectations of where the film is going to go. You know, sort of like, you know, like when you and I were kids, we learned very, very early, you know, that you really didn't have to worry too much about the main character because they were going to come through just fine right. in the end. You know, here, that's not necessarily the case. And again, I did not expect Judy to die at the end of the film. Like that was for me the most shocking moment in the entire movie. Mm that she actually dies. I thought that he would somehow confront her and he would have the truth and he would be, you know, resigned to knowing this terrible, awful truth, but go on with his life. But, you know, he not only now he, now he loses, he loses Madeline slash Judy, not once, but twice. Yeah. And now he can never recover. Everything her. goes wrong in the end. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's funny too, because I was left wondering as, you know, at the end, like, Oh, Midge, you know, like Midge is still like Midge still in the background, right. you know, he's Midge is never well, going to get faded him. off, oh, kind man. Of, you know, in this, uh, towards the end of the movie. I mean, she she's served. Yeah. And she's there. She's there when he's in the insane asylum. And then after that, you know, you know, twice when he's injured, she's there for him first at the beginning of the movie. And then again, when he's in the insane asylum, the sanitarium, I believe they call it. But, you know, again, she doesn't get uh, she doesn't get two seconds of attention from him. Yeah. I don't know. An interesting one. I mean, again, this is my pick. And, you know, usually I'm more gung ho on my picks. I think this one I'm just I'm I guess I'm a little flummoxed. I need to think about it a little bit more like. Again, an interesting and complicated movie. I don't know if I had a good time, but I was interested. I think that in a couple of years, you'll see it again and you'll like it better. Um, anything else or should we wrap up there? Yeah, I think that's it. And, you know, see the new, I guess probably all the versions you can watch now are, are newer prints, um, newer releases of the movie. They're, they look incredibly good. I mean, the Technicolor is just the, the look of the movie, the lighting, the color, the shot the editing the 
um, camera moves, the framing. I mean, it looks great. Yeah, no, I, I'm telling you, from my point of view, I noticed more than anything else the sort of technical aspects of it. Yeah, but the, you know, the new print is certainly, if you haven't seen the movie for years, um, it's, you know, maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it was restored. Uh, you know, it's been restored multiple times, but this latest one, uh, it really looks much better than I remember seeing it back on, you know, in the art house or in college or on videotape or DVD or whatever I had watched it on last. And, uh, it really looks incredible now. Do you know, just, uh, just to finish on a technical note, cause you mentioned Technicolor. Did you know that Technicolor doesn't exist anymore? Yeah, it does not. Like the actual, the, the three color Technicolor process no longer exists. And the actual machinery that would allow you to make Technicolor films is no longer an operation. Yes. Like it's just their museum pieces now. And when you see, sometimes you'll see in movies that want to achieve the Technicolor look like the sort of dye transfer technology like they just do it digitally and we talked in the aviator mm -hmm. about how they mimicked technicolor in uh scorsese's the aviator uh, just it's kind of sad to think that like technicolor you just you literally you know it's like the saturn 5 moon rocket like the machines that built the saturn 5 don't exist anymore like we couldn't build a saturn 5 today if we wanted to and we can't film a movie in technicolor i believe kodachrome which is one of the original color still films uh, for a film camera, which unlike Technicolor, you could just go down to a store and buy a roll of Kodachrome and take pictures with it on your own and get it developed and, you know, make your own pictures with that film. Uh, that is the same. I think that Kodak stopped making that years ago and it's, it's not around anymore and probably you can't develop it anymore because I know there's a, it's a difficult process. So, Right, and, and digital processes are so much more in cheap and accessible well, but, now. No, but no, Kodachrome was an earlier color technology, <clears throat> film technology. No, no, but what I'm saying is if you wanted to film with that, you, you probably couldn't. It would be cost prohibitive to do things on film now that you could just do everything digitally. No, I mean, you can use, you can get Ektachrome. Like you can get other slide technologies or other print films that you can still use film. But Kodachrome disappeared towards oh, the end gone. of when other film um, processes, mm. uh, chemistry, other film chemistries still exist, but Kodachrome doesn't. Mm. So, uh, and Kodachrome has a particular look also uh, that everybody's probably familiar with in the way that people are familiar with Technicolor. Um, but uh, anyway, so go see the new hmm. print if you haven't well, seen it for a while. It's worth, uh, just visually worth seeing. Interesting. Last thing, since we're talking about, do you remember a lot of times at the end of the movies, they would say color by yeah. deluxe? Deluxe is a version of Technicolor. It's almost the same exact technology, just since mm. we're talking about film. All right, we should wrap there. All right. Uh, uh, Mr. Hitchcock, I doff my hat to you. All right, thanks. <laughs>